Welcome to the Wake Up Your Warrior podcast with me, Christine Cohen. Every week, we will share conversations with humans whose lives have been transformed by the power of movement on their mental health, break down the latest neuroscience, and hopefully inspire you to wake up your inner warrior to fight for the best versions of you every single day. Let's get into today's episode. Hey, Warrior. On today's episode, I have a very special guest, Neil Gargiulo. Neil is actually my neighbor, and because small talk is just not my jam, I seem to attract other people who like to open up as well. At one of our community town events recently, Neil shared with me his experience of alcoholism, the role it played in unraveling his life, and how tennis was a major part of his sobriety. In our conversation today, he opens up about this, what finally made him hit rock bottom and take responsibility for his addiction. He also explains how he rediscovered tennis after decades in the early stages of his recovery and how this and movement in general played a role over the last 17 years of his sobriety. Neil and I have a really honest and realistic conversation about his experience that I think will be helpful for anyone dealing with addiction to alcohol, illegal drugs, opioid painkillers, gambling, food, sex, but also to the minor addictions of today that you might not think of as addicting, but they absolutely are. I'm talking about things like video games, porn, the news, shopping, and social media. The same brain mechanisms that mediate severe addiction also mediate our minor addictions. A quote straight out of Dopamine Nation, a book that came out earlier this year by Dr. Anna Lemke, fantastic book on addiction, by the way, if you are interested. In it, she says, because we've transformed the world from a place of scarcity to a place of overwhelming abundance, drugs, food, news, gambling, shopping, gaming, texting, sexting, Facebooking, Instagramming, YouTubing, tweeting, the increased numbers variety, and potency of highly rewarding stimuli today is staggering. The smartphone is the modern-day hypodermic needle, delivering digital dopamine 24-7 for a wired generation. I'm so honored to share my conversation with Neil with you today. But before we get to that, I want to know, have you ever wanted to know more about what natural methods actually help improve depression and anxiety? Do you get overwhelmed when you look up what supplements or methods are out there to improve mood, energy, and release stress? Maybe you just want to have a clear starting point. Listen, I get it because I've been there as well. It's complicated. There's no quick fix or magic pill, and we're really just beginning to understand so much about the brain, depression, and anxiety. But we do know some things for sure, like there is no one cause. It's not always only a psychological issue just in your mind. We also know the chemical imbalance theory, you know, the one that says the cause of depression is because of a chemical imbalance in your brain or because of low serotonin. This theory has been disproven. In fact, there has never been a scientific study to prove this causality. We also know emotional trauma can absolutely cause brain and mental health issues, but it's not the only cause. 
psychological pretenders exist, which are basically physiological issues underlying biological causes in the body, often having to do with nutrient deficiencies, gut health imbalance, inflammation in the gut and in the brain that cascade into what come out as and look like mental health issues. Depression and anxiety have many causes and therefore there are many possible solutions and treatments which is exciting information everyone's case is different but empowering yourself in your own anxiety and depression and healing is possible so i created a free workshop that takes you through how to naturally improve your depression and anxiety you can watch it instantly just by clicking the link below You'll walk away from this workshop feeling more empowered and having a clearer action plan of how to support yourself every day. In the workshop, we dig into the overlooked causes of depression and anxiety that start in the body but affect the brain. We talk about how food, vitamins, and minerals play a direct role in our brain and mental health. We talk about science-based natural methods that are scientifically proved to actually help relieve symptoms in the short term and the long term. And you'll also learn the biggest mistakes that I see people make when using natural methods and how to avoid them. Finally, you'll see how you can create your own step-by-step -step process based on your body's individual needs. Let's get into today's episode. Hi, Neil. Hi, Christine. How are you? Good. I'm really happy that you're here and oh, we're talking about this. And I'm happy to be here. I want to congratulate you on your project. I think it's going phenomenal. And Thank I know you. all the hard work you put into it. So uh, congrats. Thank you. Well, it's an honor to have a neighbor, you know, um, and it's nice because it really allows me to connect with the people that I'm living around um, who I would not have known. You know, this was a part of your story, I think, if I was not sharing my own story. So it's always good to know your neighbors and especially when you get to know them on a certain level. It's uh, it's always interesting to see how much we have in common and yeah. how much we can learn from each other. Absolutely. And I love that about this community. I didn't really have that community growing up um, when I was younger. So I really appreciate that about this place. Well, I think it's the beach, the beach atmosphere. The beach atmosphere definitely brings everyone together. Everyone's laid back and mm -hmm. cool and I love it. Me too. I'm so thankful to be here. Me too. Um, okay. So the first question I like to start off with that I've been starting off with is what is your favorite way to move your body? I enjoy tennis. Um, I play three or four times a week. I play competitively too in a, a couple of USTA leagues. Mm -hmm. And also every morning I do uh, an hour of cardio and exercise every morning religiously. Wow. Okay. So first, how did you get into tennis? I started playing tennis when I was about 18 years old. Mm -hmm. And um, I always enjoyed it. And then naturally, as life happened, I put down the racket and picked up other things, uh, a wife and a kid, number one, two. And uh, it just kind of fell by the wayside. And then what, how did you pick it back up again? Um, I had an awakening about 17 years ago. I, um, I was an alcoholic. I am an alcoholic and a drug addict recovering. And uh, all of a sudden, I had all this time on my hands. So I said, gee, let me see what I've missed in the last 35 years that I, yeah. that I haven't done. And my tennis racket was still there and I picked it up and I started playing. And uh, it's been a love affair ever since. Another addiction, as it were. Yeah, one that brings <laughs> you more life, right? That makes us feel more alive. Actually, that would be my question too. What is it about tennis that is such a love affair? When I'm on a tennis court, 
All I'm concerned about is hitting the ball over the net and everything else in the world doesn't exist. Um, it's an escape for an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, whatever it may be. And I thoroughly enjoy it. And it's uh, one of those sports where there's always going to be someone that's going to beat you bad or there's someone <laughs> you can beat bad. So it's a it's a constant evolution, constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. Do you like being beaten? <laughs> Uh, as I got older, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more humbler. So I, mm-hmm. I understand that. And what I try to take, it's so funny. I was talking to someone yesterday about it. Uh, from your defeats, you take, you take away a lesson and it picks up your game. A couple of weeks ago, someone would, was really destroying me on their serve. And after the, the match, rather than being all mad, I went up to him and I said, how do you do that serve? And they showed me and uh, now it's part of my game and you just learn. That's awesome. Yeah, totally. Because... That's such a life lesson, right? Like how many lessons in movement, in training, in workouts transfer over to life, right? Like we're defeated, we're failing, someone's beating the crap out of us. Our ego takes over and is like, screw this, F this, like I'm out of here. But when you turn it around and you see it in a different way, like what can I learn from this? Now you're using that crazy serve to probably (laughs) kick other people's asses. Right, exactly. (laughs) Um, and you mentioned the word ego. Ego is huge. Um, in the throes of my addiction, mm. my ego was uh, bigger than Yankee Stadium. Um, and nothing, no one was going to tell me what to do. Mm. And um, as I got into, I'm in a 12-step program. And as I started my 12 steps, I learned that my ego was my biggest enemy. And the bigger my ego was, looking back, the more I hated myself at that time. And I didn't realize it. Why do you think that was. Um, I don't think I ever, because the things that I did to myself, if you cared about yourself, you wouldn't have done them to yourself. If you cared about yourself, you right. would not have yeah. done them to yourself. And the ego just blinds us. Like, Well, the ego, um, I was very successful business. I had a lot of money. I had everything at my fingertips. I was divorced, uh, you know, single and everything was at my fingertips, but, uh, I lost everything. Um, my soul, I was basically, um, bankrupt morally Mm. and uh, until i uh realized that i had a spiritual awakening that i couldn't do what i was doing anymore wow can you kind of like walk us through um a little bit of your story when it like the beginning of the recovery absolutely absolutely i um well i started drinking when i was 14 years old and um i drank pretty much until i was 49 years old Drank and then naturally drugs is a part of my story. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays, I think drugs is a part of every a, a lot of addict story. And so it's not it's no longer just alcohol or it could be, but uh, definitely it's a combination. I was cross addicted. They call. I got married very young. I got married at twenty two years old. And was I, that young back, back then? Back then it was still relatively. It was, it, it, but back then it wasn't uh, obscenely young. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I had a baby right away. My daughter, my daughter was born uh, nine months after I was married. So you were a baby having I, a baby. I was, I was a baby having a baby. Um, fast forward, I mean, we're good friends now because she's 43 and I'm 66. So, I mean, we grew up together. We grew up together. Um, but going back, um, there was a sense of urgency to uh, raise and support my wife and daughter. Mm-hmm. And there was always a lot of pressure. And during that time, I wasn't really drinking and drugging so much. I mean, I always smoked pot, but it was it was not to excess. And I think uh, as I got unhappy with my whole situation, I think that's when my uh, addiction really took over. 
And then it became more or less a place to hide, mm. a place to hide, to go out and get high, get drunk, and, and you were hiding, hide, hiding from all, the, all, all reality. Can you think back to like when it did shift from maybe something that was just like socially enjoyable to a more addiction absolutely, coping mechanism? Absolutely, absolutely. Unfortunately, it shifted when I, when I became successful. All of a sudden I had all the money I, 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 could, I needed and more. I was supporting uh, my wife and daughter in a very nice fashion. And there was a lot of extra money around. And all of a sudden I said, oh, gee, I have extra money to start snorting cocaine. And uh, back then, cocaine was a little more expensive than it is now. So um, there's a saying, when you could afford a lot of cocaine, that's God's way of telling you you're making too much money. And uh, that rang true for me. And th that just took me, and it took me through hell. Um, there were four Dewees, and uh, I was fortunate enough, um, and looking back on it, I, I say it uh, humbly, I don't say it uh, braggadociously, that I was fortunate enough not to get a felony, mm. but each one was horrendous in its own way. And one of them was driving the wrong way in the Northern State Parkway. And as I say that now, the hair on my neck still stands up. Yeah. And I continued to drink for about seven years after that incident. So even after that really harrowing incident, right. didn't even, that wasn't the thing to mm -hmm. kick you into recovery, right. really. Mm -hmm. So I just wanna go back for a second because not everyone who has a ton of money decides to put it into cocaine, right? Like right. there's a diff there's something there that is contributing to that. You mentioned that you were feeling unhappy. Um Yeah, I believe it was a, a way of hiding from not facing my unhappiness. Mm. If I was it was numbing myself, I was self-medicating. Yeah. That that's I mean, it's glaring. I was self-medicating to take me away from my unhappiness. You know, um then I got divorced, and when I, once I got divorced, um, you know, there was no rules. There was no rules, and I, uh, I got divorced probably in 2000, and then in 2004, I got sober. Um, what I was having wasn't fun anymore. Mm. There was a point where I was reading, um, you know, I do a lot of research when it comes to, like, the neuroscience behind addiction, mm -hmm. and... I was reading this great book, Spark, um, by, I forget, the, last, the author's last name is Raddy, I think. And in it, he was saying, you know, addicts aren't happily drugging and drinking, right? Like, they reach a point where they don't want to be doing it, but it's a need. They feel like their life will end if they don't continue to do it because of how it feels in the brain, how it feels in the body, how it is such an escape, right? Like we escape from things that we feel are threatening our life. Well, in it, a way. it's very true. That's very true. But um, what it does is it, it does take over your body. And in my case, I couldn't do anything without being drunk or high. If it was going to a baseball game, going to a Broadway show, uh, a concert, anything, it was always all right. <clears throat> you know, there's a great bar over here. We'll stop there. You know, I got to call, get my, you know, get my coke. You know, so there was a lot of that. But all of a sudden, you realize it's become an integral part of your life, and you don't think you can have fun if you're not if, you, if you're not doing it. I see what you're saying. You don't think you can have fun if you're not doing it. But when do you realize like I'm actually not? happy. Is there ever a point where that thought hits you, where you allow yourself to feel that like inside of 
the addiction before you choose to recover? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I can honestly say probably about three or four months before I stopped, um, I would look in the mirror before I went out at night or in the morning when I was still up and look in the mirror and ask God for help. I'd say to my, I'd say to myself in the mirror, you're an alcoholic. You need help. God help me. Give me a sign. Show me something. Oh, wow. And I did have a sign. That gave me goosebumps. Yeah, I did have a sign. I got arrested again. That was your sign. That was my sign. So, you again. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm laughing because what made that the sign? If it was how, the, how many times did that make you getting arrested? That was four. Four okay. times. So, the fourth time. What right. made that the sign? Because, that's a great question. And I'll tell you. I was arrested. I was, a friend of mine's dad had died. So, I was dressed up in a nice suit. I was all done up nice. So, I went to his wake. Then afterwards, I went out on a tear. Hmm. You know, I, I was a mess. I got drunk, cocaine, women, you know, everything. And the next day, I got arrested that night. I got arrested that night. So I was in jail in a $1,200 suit with about $3,000 cash in my pocket. And I was put in a lockup with some people that I, I call then undesirable, but in essence were me without a suit. Hmm. And it made me take a long, hard look. And both of my brothers are, are attorneys. And I probably could have made a phone call and have gotten out of jail quicker than I did. But I opted not to say anything. And I stayed there for about 36 hours. I wanted the full, the full punishment. I, I kind of said, all right, God, this is how it's going to go. I'll do my part. You do your part. And um, I got out. And then the journey started. So that was, would you consider that your rock bottom? Yeah. That was my rock bottom. Now, since I've been sober, I no longer have my business. I was in another business. I, you, you know, since I, I've been through some hardships since I've been sober, mm -hmm. I buried my mom. I buried my dad. Mm -hmm. um, I also had the honor of walking my daughter down the aisle sober, mm -hmm. bringing my two grandsons into the world sober. Talk about yeah. getting your life back. That doesn't the exist. The beautiful moments yeah. and the hard moments. Yeah. But like, I think... You can tell me if I'm wrong, but like you were kind of alluding, you had other really hard times in your life. Like, it's not like that was the hardest moment of your life. And then it was easy after you decided to recover and get sober. Like you, life happens. Absolutely. Every day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Life, bad things happen all the time. Yeah. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm of the understanding now that bad things only don't only happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. It's how you respond. I know I there was no time in my drinking and drugging life cycle mm -hmm. that I said, gee, let me go out and get drunk and get high and things will be better when you know after I do that. It never got better. Drinking and drugging never made anything better for me. It just, you know, it dimmed it a little bit, but it was never better. Probably made things worse. It definitely didn't make things worse. Because the problem is still there. Mm -hmm. The problem is still there. Now, when you know when hardships uh, come up, which they do, I just think about it. You know, the gift of sobriety gave me the gift of logic. When you're not thinking logically, you do some stupid things. You know, there's the serenity prayer. God give me, you know, the strength mm -hmm. to understand the things I cannot change, the wisdom to understand the things I cannot change, the wisdom to change the things I can. Mm -hmm. It's that simple that kind of brings like a grounding for you. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, it's, um, I'm not gonna call it willpower. I don't wanna call it willpower. It's, it has nothing to do with willpower. There's a certain amount of discipline. Every morning I wake up, I read three readings from a 
book, and I say prayers. Takes about five or six minutes. If you ask me 15 minutes after that what the book said, I probably don't remember. But what I'm doing every day is I'm surrendering. I'm surrendering because, you know, I'm powerless once I start taking drugs and start drinking. I know that. So I actually would love to ask you about that. In the part of uh, the 12-step program, when people, uh, when you say, you can correct me if I say it wrong, but like, I am powerless to the addiction. Um, I feel like some people have an issue with that. Like people who have tried 12-step programs and they get to, you know, everyone is going to come up against their shit, right? When they go through the 12 steps, which is the point. But some people have a hard time like admitting that they are powerless to themselves or what is it? How do you interpret that? That's the ego. That's the ego. Um, and I find that last night I was in a beginner's meeting, uh, alcohol anonymous beginner's meeting. And uh, that's what's speaking. When you hear the term relapse, because relapse is, you know, not everyone gets it the first time. I'm fortunate enough uh, not to have relapsed yet after 17 years. And I say yet because nothing's guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And I have to keep that in front. People don't surrender. Surrendering is it's hard. I remember the first time I said to someone, uh, you know, in a meeting, you know, my name is Neil, I'm an alcoholic. I thought everyone should have stood, stood up and started giving me a, a standing ovation. <laughs> all right, big deal. All right. You're just one of us. <laughs> there, you, you know, there's a stigma that's attached to any addiction, whether it be sex, whether it be overeating, what, no matter gambling. what. Gambling. Gambling. Yeah. You know, there's a stigma when you finally have had enough, when you can truly surrender. And I believe, this is my opinion, I believe if you if you do a good first step, because that is the first step, admitted, you know, admitted you're powerless over, over your substance, you, you can stay sober. You have to do that on a daily basis. And that's why I do what I do on a daily basis. All the people I know that do have problems, they always try something different. You know, they're, they're, you know, you don't have to try anything different. You just do something religiously. Like routinely, routinely ritualistically. Right, yeah, right, absolutely. No matter what. And I've for 17 years, I've had that ritual. When I chose to start getting sober, I started praying immediately. Were you always spiritual, religious? I was spiritual, but I wasn't a church go. Now I go to church every Sunday. It's part of my sobriety, I believe. Someone asked me um, this week, they said, you know, Neil, you go to church every Sunday. I'm, I'm not really like a holy roller. Like they said, how much of it is part of sobriety and how much is part of your spirituality? I said, it's a 50-50 proposition. Mm. I didn't make any deals with God. What do you mean by that? Oh, some, you know, foxhole prayers. Oh, gee, God, if you get me out of this. You know, I didn't, I didn't make any... Then I'll never touch yeah, a drug right, again. Right. Mm -hmm. I didn't make any deals because I knew I was too shifty for that. I didn't want to put that pressure on myself. But I'm thankful that that's my higher power. And that's a problem that people have, that you have to believe in something. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be no, a religion, uh, have, God, in absolutely a not. traditional absolutely sense of the not. word. Yeah. And, you know, I find people are always looking for excuses why they can't get sober, why they can't quit gambling, or why they, you know... I'm not saying a prayer, that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. You know what? When you decide to get sober, you're handed a bag with a million excuses why you shouldn't be sober. A million excuses why you should go out and drink. And you could opt to use those excuses or not. You know, my dog died, my cat died. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, people are constantly looking for excuses to pick up and they have to understand it doesn't make anything better. I didn't get arrested every time I drank and drug, but every time I got arrested, I was high and drunk. Mm. So go, you know, simple myth. Mm -hmm.
So can we just circle back for a second, back to when you did decide I have a problem and I want to do something about it. Right. What were those first few days, months like for you? Um, very lonely, very lonely. Um, did you go right to a meeting? Did no, you... no, 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 no. I went to an outpatient program. Okay. What is that exactly? Um, it's every night, three hours a night for six nights, six days a week. I did that for almost nine months. And is does that run like a twelve step program? No, 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 no. It's yeah, just, I really it, don't. It, it, what, what I had to learn that that what I had was a disease. Once I I understood early on that alcoholism is a disease, and I accepted I have a disease. So I I logically because I had a little logic then I said, well, if I had diabetes, I would take insulin. If I was Diagnosed with cancer, I'd have chemo. Mm -hmm. So this, this I'm getting off cheap. All I have to do is stop drinking, and I'll be okay. Mm. You know, and that's how, I had to understand that it was a disease. It wasn't a character. You know, it wasn't a character. It's a you know, it's a mental illness. Mm. It's, it's, alcoholism actually is an allergy to alcohol. Mm. Yeah. Do you know uh, like a little bit more about? That? Yeah, well, that's what a hangover is. A hangover is your brain swells. You hang over as your brain swells. I was a blackout drinker. Henceforth, that's why I started doing copious amounts of cocaine because that prevented the blackout, but helped me drink more. So <laughs> a solution to a, yeah. a problem's problem. Just what I needed, right? <laughs> right. An excuse. Uh, but, you know, um, one of the telltale signs, if anyone's listening and wondering, is if you blacked out. If you black out, you know, on any, any time, chances are you have a problem. You know what's crazy, Neil, is that college is normal to go and drink and black out multiple nights of the week and binge drink and it's with your friends and it's social and it's funny and you tell stories of how the fact you can't remember what you did the night before. And it's not at all looked at as a problem. It's not as all looked at as anything but a normal college experience. And how does that fit into the, in your opinion, to the realm of addiction? Okay, um, great question. That's a really good question. I, some of the guys that I drank with, you know, are social, they are social drinkers now. And some of the people I binge drank with when I was younger, you, you know, they're normal. It's whether you have the gene, I have to call it the gene. If, to, you know, if you're an alcoholic, I think from day, from the day you're born, you're an alcoholic. You're, you, mm. you know, you have, an aversion to, you know, you have an aversion to getting sober. Mm. So it doesn't, I mean, back, you know, with those kids, are they doing damage to themselves? Absolutely. Is it normal? No. Will some of them go on to be fine? Absolutely. Will some of them have drastic drinking problems? Probably, yeah. Yeah. You know, um, the Doobie Brothers had, had, a, had an album called What Were Once Vices Are Now Habits. Yeah. And that's, you know, that sums it all up. That That is, that's true. What? What were once vices are now habits. Yeah. How true is that? And everything is a habit. Every thought we have is a habit. Every ritual we have is a habit, good, bad, whatever. Right. Um, this is just a really deeply ingrained habit. So you went to the outpatient program. You said it was 12 weeks long? No, nine months. Sorry, nine, nine months, months long. And I paid for it myself mm -hmm. because I wanted to feel that. And it was expensive. It was a couple of thousand dollars a month. Mm -hmm. I paid for it myself because I figured I was paying for it myself, not going through insurance. I see. I, you were going to feel it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it got exactly. some kind of like financial skin in the game. Right. 
Um, so you got out of that nine months later and where was your head at then compared to when you walked in? I was, um, the obsession to drink a drug was lifted from me very, very quickly. Once I, once I knew I had a, a disease, I was okay. I was okay. I, I, um, really, really, um, bought that. And I do, you know, I, I, I understood that. And that, that, if anything, that's what outpatient taught me. Mm-hmm. They didn't go into the 12 steps at all. In fact, my first um, AA meeting, I got into, I was still in um, outpatient in August. So it's from June, uh, June 4th is my sober date. So August, I was going out with a young lady who lived across the street on the South Shore. They were having a big music festival across the street from my house. So, you know, she knew I was trying to get sober. So I said, listen, I said, we go there during the day, but at night, you know, people still don't start smoking pot and everything. I don't want to be around. Yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. Um, sure enough, we went back to her house, uh, had something to eat. She goes, come on, let's go back over there. I said, I'm not going. And I was really afraid. So I went to an AA meeting. <laughs> Didn't turn out the way I thought it would. Um, I got in there. I was all jammed up. And they started me and I raised my hand right away. I said, listen, I- I'm just trying to get sober. This girl, I told him the whole story. I was really all over the place. And some fat old bastard told me, shut up. We'll get to you when we get to you. <laughs> so you kind of figure out what I told him. Yeah. I still had a bit of an ego. <laughs> I told him I told him who he could sleep with that night. <laughs> and, I, and I stormed out of the room. And the next day I went to outpatient. And the counselor said, did any guys go to an AA meeting? And I raised my hand. I said, yeah, it's a bunch of bullshit. Mm. And he said, then we went into depth what happened. And it was probably a certain type of meeting that they were going to get to me. But there's a whole routine now. But still, if I ever see that guy again, I'm going to slap him in the face. Anyway, <laughs> because that wasn't nice. Well, sure, because you just are vulnerable for the first time stepping right. into a room. That was your first AA meeting My first experience. AA meeting, yeah. Right. Yeah, and I'm sure you were like, I'm not going back to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. What kept you not, you know, just Growing up that night and drinking um, after that, because I was devastated. I was I, I was devastated. And I was afraid because I had the investment with the outpatient. I didn't want to blow my couple of thousand dollars, mm-hmm. even though guys were coming in and out all the time. There, they would be they'd come in high. But I I wanted you know I I can actually say I was always an athlete, so I had a competitive spirit. How did that come into play? Oh, the competitive spirit is just not to not to fail not to fail in what you decided to take. So this is, it's not a game for me, but it is a competition. Mm. And um, with yourself, with myself. Yeah. To prove that I could accomplish this. It, it's an ongoing process. I'm ne- I'm always going to be recovering. I'm never going to be recovered. So every day is a new competition. Mm. That's really interesting. But by the same token, it's a very comfortable place. I, I mean, there are some people who, in Gamblers Anonymous, whatever it might be, they f- they feel very like they they're tied up. They're very tight about what they're doing. I can't do this. I can't do that. Mm. If I have to live like that, I might as well just go out and get fucked up. Because you know what? What's the difference? I I ch- I choose sobriety because it enables me to be free. When I first and now to go back to what you said, when I first got sober, my my initial thought was. A big freedom is taken away from me. Mm. And as the longer I stayed sober, I realized I was in a prison that I made by myself. I think that is like the key, key takeaway there. Right. That shift in seeing it from I'm sacri- my life is restricted. I'm sacrificing something because I am giving it up. Right. Like right. I'm giving this up 
But meanwhile, you're not, you're gaining something. Absolutely. And that, that really kind of grounds you in a different way. Right. You, you know, I mean, initially my thought was, how am I going to meet women? How am I going to have fun at a ball game? How am I, you know, and all of a sudden you realize all those things are enhanced without the drug or the drink. How are they enhanced without it? You, number one, you remember everything you're saying. Number two, two, you get to feel what you're actually feeling. It's not numbed. And number three, you remember everything you did and what you've seen. That in itself is worth everything. I mean, I think back to my daughter's wedding. If I was still using the mess, I would have been. I remember everything about that evening. What do you remember most about that evening? I remember walking through the, the wedding hall. It was a beautiful place. Walking through it, holding her hand before everyone got there. And her saying, I just can't believe that this is happening. And I get choked up just talking about now. It, I'm gonna... She, you know, she, you know, she, and it was the most wonderful feeling, you know, and I was able to pay for everything. And it was, she, and we just hold, holding hands, just looking at everything in amazement. It was magnificent. And that moment that may mo not have ever happened if you didn't. Absolutely, absolutely, positively would have, would have never happened. She probably would have been sending guys into her bathroom to make sure I wasn't snorting coke. Burying my parents, being present, being present, being able to, to greet people without booze on my breath or some something coming out of my nose. Mm -hmm. Remembering how bad, how bad that loss was. Not waking up three days later and saying, gee, dad's dead. That sucks. Feeling it every inch of the way. You know, it was a privilege. So many people are afraid to feel pain, especially, and that's why that makes them pick up drugs or drinking in the first place, right? So Absolutely. what tools, like how do you learn to trust that pain isn't going to kill you? Don't be afraid to cry. I cry. I cry now. If something really good happens, I tears well up. If something bad happens, when something bad happens, I take it a lot better than I used to. When something good happens, I, I get more joy out of it. Mm. It's That's amazing. You, you know, if, if someone dies, you know, gee, I feel the loss. Absolutely. Will I cry? Maybe. But if my grandson, I mean, my grandson, one of my grandsons, uh, not too long ago, he told me, he goes, Pa, when you, when you die, I'm going to come see you every day. He goes, it might only be for 15 minutes, but I'm going to come see you. I'm going to come see you every day. I mean, you know what? You know what? I would never get that love from anybody. You have two grand. Two grandsons, yeah. Right. And both of them equally, you know, the, the light of my life. Again, to have the relationship I have with those guys is just, it, it, you know, I mean, from when they were infants, um, I've taken them out all the time. If I'm drinking and drugging, that doesn't exist. That doesn't. My poor daughter's worried about, geez, dad going to wrap around a tree or something like that. Yeah. Um, I know this from my research in the brain uh, of patients who have depression, but there are certain parts of the brain that actually shrink with depression. And the primary one is the hippocampus, which is where we make new memories. And in addition to that, uh, the capacity for us to feel the hard emotions and the really joyful emotions in any sort of mental illness is restricted because one, because we're, we're continuing to block the hard stuff. And when we continue to like basically cut off our ability to feel things that are painful by numbing or coping, the brain adapts to that, but it also diminishes our ability to experience the joys and the highs 
And that to me, when I read that was, it, I totally related to it because like you just explained your ability to feel the really good stuff is, I don't know how many percent more than when you were really struggling um, with the addiction. And like you can physiologically have basically the receptors to feel all the good feels, all like the good hormones that make us feel really good, like the dopamine and the serotonin. Mm -hmm. So physiologically, we are, our capacity to feel joy is expanded when we heal. And it doesn't have to be big joys. It could be little, little things, things, little things that, you know, put a smile to your face, mm -hmm. make you excited. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. It's, it's, you know, if someone is in a wheelchair and all of a sudden you could say, you know what, you could get up and walk. How great is that? In essence, that's what I, I was, I was handicapped. Mm -hmm. I was handicapped for 49 years. And suddenly I was able to walk. I could see, I could feel, put a price on that. And there's no, you know, there's no guarantees. There's no guarantees that your life is going to get better. There are no guarantees, but boy, you'll live a better life. You'll live a better life. And the most important thing, Christine, I, I think it's imperative I touch on is you have to be doing this for yourself. You have to love yourself enough to give yourself this opportunity. When I was in the throes of my addictions, I could have been in the middle of Madison Square Garden with everyone shouting, Neil, get sober, Neil, get sober. I wasn't going to get sober. They didn't know what the hell they were talking about. It's a personal. It's one of the most personal experiences I've ever had if not the most personal experience I've ever had. You know, to go one-on-one -on -one with yourself, to face your shortcomings, it's pretty tough. It is. Pretty tough. It is, and yet that's that was the key, right? Absol that, that's absolutely. Absolutely. That's, mm -hmm. that's the surrender. That's mm -hmm. it. That's, that's saying, you know what, I can't do it anymore. Everything I've accomplished since, you know, before that is diminished because I was handicapped. So bringing it back to the, the place of exercise and movement and where that kind of plays a role in your recovery. Um, you picked up a tennis racket at some point, but what is it, would you say that movement um, helps you with in terms of your mental health, in terms of well, that? Great question. Early on, Christine, when you know you get certain urges, I mean, my obsession was lifted, but um, you get certain urges to, uh, to have a good time. Um, and what you do is you just transform that into exercise. And you know, once you take stock of yourself, you want to start looking better. I mean, you know, you talk about that thing in the brain, you know, that makes you feel. I mean, I know guys that have been drinking for 50 and 60 years. They look like zombies for the most part. Mm. Recently, I went to a reunion, high school, and some of, the, some of the guys, you know, you could tell some of the guys just didn't look right. You know, and uh, some of them, you know, I was close with, you know, we smoked pot in the school parking lot all the time. And I, t I shared them. I said, listen, you know, I haven't had a drink or a drug in 17 years. Some of the guys I thought were going to come back to me, but the look in their eyes was one of envy. Hmm. Gee, I wish I could do that. I wish I would have done that. You know, they have health issues that fortunately I don't have. Um, so in essence, what you're doing is you're taking stock in yourself and you say, listen, I gave up this part of my life. I didn't give it up I, to make my life better. What else can I do? And all of a sudden exercise. I was always a jock. So exercise was always a part of me. Mm -hmm. um, but it just it just took a different level. You said it helps kind of like curb urges or things. That absolutely. You would have, absolutely. Yeah, I, I know a lot of people that, you know, they feel like drinking, they'll go out on a run. Um, what did I tell you? We had a conversation where I go, uh, move a muscle, change your thought. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't dwell in that. I mean, because you, you, you know, 
you have to understand, you know, your disease is going to be with you all the time. I'm always going to be an alcoholic. I, I'm, I'm going to have it in me. So my disease is telling me, you know what? Bullshit. You don't have to, you don't have to work out today. You know, have a glass of champagne, have mm -hmm. a beer. You know, it's, it's always, it's a tug of war. It's there. It's always going to be there. It's, would you say it's on loud or it's on like low volume? Oh, it's low volume. But early on, it's loud. Early on, it's loud. Until you learn how to be sober, it's rough. Mm -hmm. um, and how to be sober, I have to touch on that. I know people that have just given up drinking and drugs without any program whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And by and large, they're miserable bastards because they don't know how to live. All they're doing is they call it white knuckling it. They're clenching. Right. And saying, I can't, you know, I can't drink, God damn it. Look at these guys drinking. They don't understand, you know, the spiritual end. There's a spiritual end. Mm -hmm. And again, it doesn't have to be religious. Mm -hmm. It's a spirituality that you have to get and where you could you learn to live sober. That's what it gives you. That's amazing because even just in that like very small distinction of words, and often when I'm working with clients, whether it's to help them recover from emotional eating or we're talking about um, overcoming depression and anxiety. It's, and we all do this until we realize it, but we say, I want to stop overeating or I want to stop binge eating or I want to stop drinking or I want to stop feeling anxious and depressed. But what do you want to feel after that? What do you want it to look like after that? What do you want it to create? Like, what do you want to create after you stop? And I think what you just said is the, is the difference. It's how to live sober, right? how to live in food freedom, how to live um, in the waves and the ups and the downs of life and managing the way that we respond to it. Um, and that, when you start to ask the question there, you're gonna get different answers than just, how do I stop drinking? Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's, a, you know, it's so multifaceted. It would take us 10 years to go over every facet. Of course. Of it. But <laughs> it's basically, you want a better life and you want it for yourself. It, again, it's a selfish program because you're doing it all for yourself. Mm -hmm. If I quit drinking because my girlfriend says, oh, you drink too much. And then, I, you know, I'm sober six months and all of a sudden she starts breaking my chops. I said, I gave up drinking for you. What the hell is this? This is the payback. And you pick up. Mm -hmm. You pick up. And, and, you know, it doesn't matter if it's your children, grandchildren, no matter what. You have to put yourself first when it comes to this. And you have to be able to walk away sometimes. Walk away? Walk away from people, places, and things. Um, when I quit drinking and drugging, not one of those people I drank a drug with ever called me up to see how I was doing. Not one of them. And there was, there was a lot of people. Not one of them. Not one of them. Was that hard for you to No, not at all. Realize? But, you know, and by the same token, when I was drinking and drugging and someone came up to me and said, hey, you know what? I'm trying to quit drinking and drugging. I'm going to meetings. I did one or two things. I got as far away from them as possible, or I forced them to drink and drug. Really? Absolutely. Because I, I figured if they were drinking and drugging, I was still okay. If they quit, that means I had a problem. So I just. So you kind of like sabotage. I, I sabotage. Mm -hmm. Absolutely sabotage their sobriety. Mm -hmm. That happens um, sometimes with couples who one is actually trying to overcome a binge eating um, thing and. It will happen in friendships sometimes. I see it where it's the fear of that person, one, either having to recognize what they maybe can do in their life to improve their own life and they are not ready to accept it. And it's kind of like that mirror 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. I mean, when when you're married, I can't married to a recover recovering alcoholic in the early stages, it's like you come home and the house is painted a different color every time you walk in the door. You don't know you don't know what to expect. So uh, the spouses or partners of people recovering, you know, kudos to them because it, it's tough. It's tough. Uh, they don't know what they're going to walk into. And a lot of times I've seen married people, one of the one of the partners gets sober and not too long after there's a divorce. After the sobriety. After the sobriety, yeah, it's a divorce because it's not the same person. Mm. It's not the same person. I'm still, I'm lucky, I'm still... A, pretty much the same guy um i haven't transformed too much maybe i'm working on that but i still have a lot of fun i i have a personality i go i go to restaurants where there's bars i've been in bars i i'm fortunate way but again it was all in time that was, wasn't what you were doing a year out of the program no 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 I, and i know some people they you, you know you're not as important as you think you know some people early in um my cousin's stepbrother's getting married and they invited me to the wedding. I got to go. You know, you don't have to go. You don't have to go. I had to go. No, because you're going to go there and torture yourself. You're not ready for it. You're not ready for it. And in time, you realize what you're ready for and what you're not ready for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm fortunate now I could go anywhere, do anything. There are certain places I still will not go to and never go to again. But that's, you know... <laughs> They're, they're not exactly the uh, pillars of society, so I don't have to worry about it. But again, it's you don't feel like you're missing out. Absolutely. I, f- I feel like they're missing. I, you know, mm. it's funny. I, I don't cast judgment, you know, but when I see people drunk and a little disorderly, I just nod my head and say, gee, that could have been me. And, you know, I've been there. You know, I've, I've been there. Uh, not too long ago, I lost a friend uh, to cirrhosis of the liver. Mm, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, and uh, he drank. I drank as much as he did, and he's 64 and he's dead. And, uh, you know, when his wife called me to tell me, I, I said I thought he'd quit drinking, and she said, no, he never stopped. Mm. And uh, and he's dead. And and I didn't know he had it until he died, naturally, but because uh, he's living down in Florida, and he sent some text messages to me were, were, that were out of his character. You know, I, I always liked you. I loved your family. And you could hear, like, I reread him after I found that he was dead. And you could hear the sadness in his voice that, you know what, I'm, I'm, my disease is killing me. Mm. And you didn't let yours. You know, do you take a little bit of a little bit of pride with that? Yeah, I do. You know, I, I'm a human being. And I realize, you know, that could have been me. I learned from that. You learn just just like... I learned from getting my ass kicked in tennis. I learned from certain things. Um, I had another good friend of mine who had mouth cancer and he chose to still drink and he died also. And there's no way in my mind that I, you, you can't tell me if he quit drinking, he could have lived longer. He just couldn't do it. Very sad, very sad. It's a, it's a, it's a horrible drug. There, are, There's a lot of nasty drugs out there now, fentanyl, heroin, you know, it's it's any it's on any level, mm-hmm. but now the, I mean, the stakes have been raised because uh, I ran a program for years at Pilgrim State, and when I first saw kids 18 years old coming and addicted to heroin, I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't fathom it. Um, and driving home one night, I said, you know what? 
because I never thought I would be doing heroin. I said, you know what, if I would have continued the way I was going, at the end of the night, I said, someone said, you know, snort this and you could go to sleep. I probably would have. So from, you know, that's, that's your disease, my disease. And I was sober 15 years, 16 years at the time. That's my disease saying, you know what, don't, don't ever turn your back on me because I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Like, don't forget. Yeah. I'm still here. Yeah. You um, do give back a lot in uh, the community of helping addicts, right? Like you've been a sponsor before. I, You're still active in 12-step programs. Absolutely. I don't, I don't force it down anyone's throat. I've never come up, I've never gotten up to a guy who was drinking and say, gee, you know, you don't do yourself. I don't, I, I don't play that game. Again, it goes, you know, if someone comes to me for help, and it could be in any realm, um, overeating, what, gambling. In fact, my cousin's in Gamblers Anonymous, and through through the uh, quarantine, I took a, I had a commitment at St. Charles Rehab over here in Port Jeff, where I was going up there speaking, and he started coming with me. Because it's a pulsed-up program, and it kept him from gambling. Yeah, you know, so it doesn't re- it doesn't really matter what it is. You could fit it all into uh, just change the name. That's right, all. Right. Just change the work the is the same. The work is the same. What do you think about these days? I feel like in the recovery world, there is like kind of like pick and choose your own recovery, where certain people will say, "Well, I am addicted to alcohol, but I can still." smoke weed or even in terms of a 12-step program where they feel like I don't need to go to to meetings after I'm good I don't need to go any any more meetings what do you think about that you you know um I envy people that could do that because I can't I know with me this is how my mindset goes uh we could be out and I could have a glass of wine I'm okay two weeks later I might have three glasses of wine I'm okay Four weeks later, I'm drinking three bottles of wine and I'm calling my cocaine dealer because he's still waiting for me to call him after 17 years. Um, I don't believe in that. I don't subscribe to that. I met someone recently that uh, recovering from drugs and was drinking. I said, you could drink? I said, you you could drink? Yeah, yeah. I said, so you didn't drink when you were doing drugs? No, 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 no. So I said, okay. I said, I said it's a little dangerous if you ask me. And I, and I dropped it. I dropped it. In my mind... I thought it was really fucking dangerous, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. That you know that that made my hair stand up. But some people can do it. I don't subscribe to that because eventually, I mean, if you're an alcoholic and you're still smoking weed, I don't know about those people, but when I smoked weed, my logic got all screwed up, and you know everything was okay. Yeah, I'll try that. I'm really thirsty. Just let me have a sip of that. Eventually, you're gonna sip the wrong thing. That's why I don't do anything. It's really about like maintaining that presence. That logic that you spoke It's going to alter your mind. Anything that alters my mind is going to screw me up eventually. So no thank you. No thank you. Um, <laughs> and if you're trying to figure out, I mean, there's new programs. You see these wonderful programs with people with beach robes on. They swim 14 <laughs> hours. They ride horses. And in 28 <laughs> days, they're great. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's, it's all, it's, it, it boils down to it's a money-making process. You know, they're trying, you know, it's great. You might be okay for a little while, but you're not going to last. Ultimately, Ultimately, you got to do the work You got every in, single day. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be like, you know, some people are, oh, this is hard work. Listen, you're making yourself better. There's no rush. I did, there's, there's a step, it's a fourth step where you go through all the crap that you did. Mm-hmm. And I did it with a priest. I call it an exorcism. It was more like an exorcism than a fourth step. <laughs> 
<laughs> what do you crying, mean? It was crying, screaming, you, you know, it, you know, the priest, uh, who's a personal friend of mine w- was an addict, is an addict as well. Mm. So, so did he offer to be that? I came you? in there. Yeah, yeah. I came in there and we just laid it all out. And, and it, what is the fourth step? You, you, you know, you just go through all your wrongdoings basically. And it's like making them, is that the make amends? No, 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 step? no that's, that's, that's a ninth step. step. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's that's an ongoing process with me after 17 years, it's still. And, you know, what I find um, in sobriety, people could tell that you are sober. So some of these people have had to make amends to. They just looked at me and said, you don't have to say anything. We could see you've changed, hmm. which is a really nice feeling. Wow. It's a really nice feeling. But I did a lot of crappy things. And you, you know what? Because I'm sober doesn't mean I'm excluded from doing shitty things. I still do some screwed up stuff. But you know what? I recognize it. Sometimes I, I, I fix it and sometimes I think about it. So, you, you know, it's an ongoing process. It's an, I'm not perfect. We're humans. Yeah, We're yeah. going to screw up. Yeah. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to do things as we figure out life. Um, and it's how you, like you said, how you respond to it. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So you kind of talked about this a little bit, but I would love to, you to go into more detail because I think that, that like the how to be sober topic, but the rituals that ground you every day, you, you mentioned you wake up, you read a few passages read, right. from three different books, three different books. Okay. What uh, what, one's a recovery book and two of them are spiritual books. Okay. Basically, basically in the Christian Christian uh, spiritual books and daily readings. And then I pray to St. Jude. Okay. Um, and then, then what do you do? Then what happens? And then I go work out. <laughs> then I exercise. And so the exercise that you do of choice is? Oh, it's a cardio. Cardio. I, what I mean, does that look like for you? It's a, can I use the guy's name? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's a guy named Brian Zayaki. Okay. He's, it's just, you know, you just put it on what you want. Abs, um, walking. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I do about an hour of that a day. Is it a video? Is yeah, it Yeah, it's on YouTube. YouTube. It's on YouTube. Okay, YouTube. Cool. So you just, whatever you feel like doing. I find his workouts are really good and I enjoy nice. it. What are, um, what are we talking about? Are they getting like your heart rate up? Is heart, it really intense or heart is it rate, a, a mix? A, a, it's a mixture of uh, cardio and exercise. So but, weights and... Yeah, I've been doing some light weights also. Cool. Because I don't want to get muscle bound at 66. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have to worry about that. Um, and, and and how do you feel when you're doing that or after you're doing that? I feel exhilarated and accomplished. And how does that impact the rest of your day? The rest of your day, it's, it's a great way to start your day because wherever I walk into, I'm not dragging my ass. I'm retired now. Um, recently, I've had like a little part-time job and uh, just walking in there and just seeing these zombies walking around. It's like, wow. And because they're rolling out of bed and, and getting into your day. And you know what? That's part of the routine that leads you may, may lead you to alcoholism or some type of abuse, because you know what? What, what else do I got? You, you know, you you have to be alert and be thankful. I'm the the one thing that I've got is is an immense amount of gratitude for for little things, little things like what being here, being here by the beach. I mean, during the quarantine, every every day, winter too, I was on the beach walking. I mean, some days I challenged myself when the wind was really bad. I think one time I froze my eyeballs because it was so friggin' cold. But, I know, we had some cold days. But it was, it's magnificent. Little things. Being able to go, walk down to the beach and lay on a beach chair. You know, it doesn't have to be. the. I don't need the big ticket anymore. Mm. I don't need the big ticket. 
the little moments, the, the in-betweens. Exactly, exactly. Are you consciously connecting to gratitude throughout the day? I just walk around saying, this is great. I mean, my poor daughter went through a little uh, health issue and she called me up Sunday. She said, dad, can I come over? I need to talk to you. I mean, her and I are very close, but it was, it's a little odd for a Sunday. I said, yeah, sure, come on over. And she came over and she said, have you ever been anxious, dad? And I said, maybe for about a half hour. And she said, my God. And, you know, we laughed about it, but it's true. I mean, anxiety, it, it's not in my world anymore. I mean, the anxiety that I had 17 years ago was all self-inflicted. What do you mean? Well, because the anxiety, because, you know, you're high on coke and you're supposed to close a big business deal and you want to make sure no one knows you've screwed up. It's a little anxiety there. A little bit. <laughs> you know, you're looking at the clock, you're in a bar at five o'clock in the morning and you got to be at a meeting at eight o'clock in the morning. And you're wondering, you know, could I have time for another drink or should I go home and try to shave? And maybe get a little sleep, maybe get like 10 minutes sleep, you know, just ridiculous, mm. ridiculous what you do to yourself. So you don't feel overwhelmed, anxiety, What I do, it's, it's past, it's passing, it's passing. A couple of weeks ago, I was in a shower and it, and it came on to me. It just came on to me. I said, what the hell is this? What did you feel? I just felt a little, little uptight, a little twisted. Mm. A little palpitation, a little twisted. I said, what the hell is this? And I, I started giggling. <laughs> I started giggling. I started giggling. I said, this, okay. is, this is weird. I said, what the hell is this doing here? Uh, and it passed. By the time I got in my car, I put on some music, put the top down, and I was fine. And it was gone. It was gone. I don't know whether it was something I ate. I really don't. Yeah. Yeah. But you notice this uh, is a strange. This is strange. This is normal yeah. for me. Yeah. Well, it's interesting when you do know your body so well how you can be in tune with something that does feel exactly odd. and whether you know how to relieve it you know usually what i like to talk with people about is just like there's prevent things you do to preventatively get your body basically better at stress and that's one amazing thing that exercise actually does is oh, yeah. it gives your body little bits of stress to kind of like practice for the game, right? Like if you're gonna use a sports analogy, you practice to get better at your skill. And then in the game, you do your best that you can. And that's literally what you're doing every single day when you play tennis or you do your That's so on point, that's so on point. Because like I said, I play competitive tennis and it's funny, 66 years old, I'm not gonna win the US Open or Wimbledon, but the moments before a match, I get butterflies in my system, I get yeah. butterflies. And it feels great. Like, as I'm 66 years old, and I'm still nervous about playing tennis. How great is that? Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you embrace that. My brother, who's older than me, is a marathon runner. Oh, wow. No way. Yeah. He, Anthony is 69 years old. He, he runs two, four or five marathons a year. What? Yeah. And he's and he runs every day. I mean, he's... A, he's well, I would think he's so. Crazy. That's amazing. And, like, we talk That's about... That's amazing. He goes, yeah. He goes, I mean, like, the... This, he goes, I can't wait to become 70 years old because I can run in the 70 and older competition and probably <laughs> and win beat him. And, beat him. <laughs> and beat him. He goes, so it's good. He goes, yeah, but I get, we get nervous. You get nervous before. It, again, it's all, and it's escapism, definitely. One, but it's a good escapism because when you're nervous about that match or nervous about that run, you're not thinking about anything else. There's nothing else that exists. You're in the moment. And, and there's so much crap going on in the world today. You've got to be able to, to duck under it. Yeah. You know, I mean, my 11-year-old grandson the other day said, Pa, what's going on in Afghanistan? I'm nervous. You know what? There's 
there's no need for an 11 year old to be that way i don't think breaks my heart yeah but you we're know, all the, feeling that this is what everyone's getting injected with this on a daily basis yeah that's a great word for it injected with you it get injected with it. i mean you know i hide i hide in my music hide in music listen to music what kind of music do you like to listen to, to- <laughs> you shouldn't have asked that question lately i've been listening to french female jazz singers okay it's it's erotic as hell i love it (laughs) i love it is that what you're listening to in your little beetle convertible sometimes sometimes i listen mainstream but on the beach though a lot of bossa nova nice just crazy stuff and like i know everything about music so it's like wherever it it takes you and it's it's funny a lot of people when they get sober can't listen to music anymore really oh yeah because it's a it's a trigger you know, I was at that concert and I took three hits mm, of acid. I see, yeah. To me, it's like, you know, it's just part of it. It's part of it. I mean, on a certain level, um, you mentioned the ninth step. You know, there's amends to be made. But on a nev- another level, I'm glad I took every drink and every drug I did because it would have never got me here. So that was the price I had to pay. And, you know, I say that humbly. I don't say it braggadociously. Mm-hmm. I say it humbly. Uh, I had to take every one of those drinks and every one of that drug to get here. It's amazing. That's an amazing yeah. story. Thank you so much. Christine, it was a pleasure. I enjoyed this immensely. This was wonderful. Yeah, I really appreciate you just being like so open and just so giving. And anybody who listens to this, I know will find some connection to your story. Well, you know how to get in touch with me. And I don't know if you could edit this if you'd like. If any of your clients would like to speak with me, I welcome it. Thank you for offering that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Are there just even for resources for people, are there any resources that you like that you would just like to even just share for people to check out who might be wanting some support? Well, there's the big book of AA. It's it's, it's actually called that, the big book of AA. Um, And that was written by the founders. Okay. There's stories in there that you will identify with, I guarantee, if you have any type of addiction. I never went to an AA meeting and didn't come away with a little something. I mean, I've been to AA meetings where there were a lot of assholes too, okay? But just like when I was drinking, I never went to a bar and didn't have a drink. I go into an AA meeting, I'll I'll see some things that I don't really like, but I always come away with something. Mm -hmm. So there's always something we had. The the big book, the AA big book, really. um, And all these other fly-by-nights, I call them. You know what? Um, that's, That's where it all derived from. So uh, take a look at it. Great. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Christine. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Neil today. Feel free to send this episode to anyone you feel might benefit from listening to it. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not already following us, please make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have a story that you want to share, please reach out to us using the email below. And make sure you check out all of our past podcasts, as well as the freebie downloads at wakeupyourwarrior.com. See you next Monday for a brand new episode. Thank you so much for listening. Have an amazing week.